We're so thankful we have this opportunity to gather in thy presence. What a great God we serve, and we can only look to thee with expectant eyes, knowing that we are so needy, weak, and limited, but thou, Heavenly Father, art, uh, art infinite. There is no limit uh, to thy being or thy power. And so, Heavenly Father, as, as needy children, we come before thee now and ask for thy blessing. We want to remember now in prayer those who have special needs. Dear Lord, we're mindful of the Kemsky family, the extended Kemsky family that is grieving the loss of their loved one. Heavenly Father, thou art the one who is able to offer a balm for every wounded heart. And Heavenly Father, in their need, we pray that they would turn unto thee for comfort and for strength. We want to pray for our sister Christine as well, who is experiencing weakness, and for Sister Viorica, who is caring for her. Heavenly Father, lift her up and help us also to be thy hands and feet to minister unto the needs of those that are uh, caring for our loved ones. Heavenly Father, please now uh, be with those who are preaching thy word wherever it may be heard this morning hour throughout this country and around the world. And we want to remember also our brothers and sisters in far-off places such as Papua New Guinea as they would strive to push back the darkness of Satan and ignorance and to shine forth uh, the, the blessed light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we look together into thy word, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> I've mentioned already a few times from this pulpit that I would like to preach a, a sermon series, something I don't think I've ever done before, uh, <clears throat> on the attributes of God. And so today, with the Lord's help, I'd like to speak a little about the infinitude of God, his infinite nature. And you may say, well, I already know that. We should be able to do that in about five minutes. But I don't think we really do. And so with the Lord's help, I'd like to read for this morning's meditation just a few verses out of Colossians, the third chapter. If you'll open with me to Colossians chapter 3. I'd like to read the, three, the first three verses. <clears throat> This may seem to be an odd choice, but with the Lord's help, I think you'll understand why I've selected these verses. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead... And your life is hid with Christ in God. I'd like to conclude with that. Let's kneel for prayer. O great and glorious creator of all, we come humbly into your presence, aware of thy great holiness and our inadequacy, our fragility, our failure. Lord, but by the blood of Christ, we can have the confidence to draw near because we have one who is our advocate, who has made a way through his flesh, through the veil, Father, there's so much we do not understand. We pray this morning that as we sit at your feet for learning, 
that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we would let go of our preconceptions, our preoccupations, our distractions, and that we could truly wrestle with the truths that are revealed in your word. And Lord, that you would inspire our dear brother and that we can all have your spirit shaping us into the image of your son. Father, we do indeed need to lift up our eyes to set our affections on those things that are eternal and not things that are going to be quickly disappear and transient like a vapor, our life, our possessions, our health, our happiness. But Lord, we know that there are things that endure forever. And Lord, we want to focus on those. Help us, Lord, to lift up our eyes indeed. Father, we also want to bring before you those uh, who are going through difficulty and challenges. Father, we think of the, the Kemsky family and uh, the tragedy that's happened there. Pray for comfort and grace and for your redemptive work. We pray for Sister Christine and who's going through uh, great physical challenges. Uh, Father, we pray for comfort and special strength and grace for Sister Viorg as she is there. And Lord, that we can come alongside and be your body. Um, Father, we pray that we could act in such a way. Lord, we see there's many needs, many who are dealing with illness and old age. Father, help us to have your heart of compassion and hands and feet that would meet the needs. And Lord, that the world could say that we truly love one another, not in word, but in deed and in truth. Father, that you may be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I begin, I want to say that many of these ideas are not original to me. There have been others that have instructed me, <clears throat> and I would like to share them as a student who is still learning. But you may ask the question, why is it important to even discuss the attributes of God? We can simply make a checklist and rhyme them off. If we start with a wrong idea about God, we will get everything else wrong. We will not understand ourselves correctly. We will not understand God, of course. And our entire frame of reference will be off. I remember years ago <clears throat> um, reading a, a story about a, a, a lunar uh, module that was launched uh, from Earth, of course, and, and sent to the moon to land on the moon. And at the cost of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars. And the lunar module was destroyed on impact because it fa they found out that the people making the course corrections to the module and those giving the instructions were using two different systems of measurement. And being off on that fundamental thing ended with destruction. Ignorance is not innocence. We need to be careful with that. Ignorance is not innocence. 
There is a time of innocence, that's true, and it is rooted in ignorance. But once the light comes, once the understanding dawns, we cannot unlearn those things. And so it's important that as we begin to learn about God, we continue to learn about God and understand him more clearly. Because as we do that, we put ourselves in the proper frame of reference and things come into focus. The infinitude of God. Why is that important? First of all, God is the only, if I can use the word thing, being. In our entire reality, that is infinite. Nothing else is infinite. Nothing. That may come as a shock to you. Because we use the word infinity. In fact, you know, when children argue on the playground... You know, they'll say things like times infinity or infinity times infinity when they're trying to outdo each other. And of course, it's ridiculous and we laugh at it. They don't even know what they're talking about. But the thing is, I don't think we know what we're talking about either. We have no understanding of infinity. There is nothing in our experience or in our reality that we can ascribe infinity to other than God. Mathematics will point to the concept of infinity, but really it's just pointing to God. The stars, for instance, are not numberless. Scientists tell us they can be numbered. There is a limit to the edge of our universe. That idea in and of itself is mind-boggling. Even something like the conservation of energy, which is a bedrock of our understanding of physics, is actually not true. As a, as a layman, I did a little bit of reading on the subject and as the universe expands, the, the, the density of energy within the universe drops as well. So what do you do with that? If everything is running down and nothing that we know is really truly limitless, then what is a limitless God? Now, God never tells us exactly what he is. He only tells us what he is like. And that's because our minds can't, con can't contain it. It's really that simple. He gives us these little hints and tells us these things, and he says, I'm like this, I'm like this, and I'm like this. And we need to hold all of them, like a child holds a few marbles in his hands. We hang on to those things, not understanding exactly how they all feed into the whole because he's too great for our minds. That's part of his infinite nature. Whatever attribute God has, he has it perfectly, and that means to infinitude. No limit, no boundary. The stinging rebuke that God gave in, I think it's Psalm 50. He says, Thou thoughtest I was a one altogether like unto thee. You thought I was just like you. Maybe bigger. But you thought I was like you. And that's where our problems start. If we rewind in time, right back to the very beginning in the garden. The fall of man, the temptation of Eve, the sin of Adam, all was based on a faulty understanding of God. That's how critical the right thinking about God is. Eve thought God was somehow holding out on her. Adam, I believe, thought that a life without his, his beloved companion, Eve, was not worth living, and so he chose sin over God. 
somehow thinking that God couldn't have a way to redeem all of this. We're just completing a booklet on the, the triune God, the nature of God's, God's Trinitarian nature. That's another concept that the mind staggers at. It was hinted at in the Old Testament. But we do not fully understand the Trinity until we begin to understand Christ. Christ is the key. And the reason that I read these verses together, let's look at them again, especially the, the third verse. So, well, let's take, let's take all three again. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. First of all, that tells us that the, the key to the Christian life doesn't reside down on this plane. We need to be putting our sights higher. We need to be looking for those things that are beyond. It says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. The old systems of idolatry were very much concerned with the things on the earth. You needed rain, you prayed to the rain god. You needed to have a baby, you prayed to the goddess or god of fertility. You needed a good harvest, you prayed to them, and you tried to use physical offerings down here as leverage to get your little god to act the way you wanted him or her to act. And if you read the, the mythology of the ancient cultures, you'll find squabbling gods that are constantly fighting and have vendettas against each other, and the whole thing is rather ridiculous. They're exactly like humans, just a little bit elevated, on top of Olympus instead of down at its base. The key comes in the third verse, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. What does that mean? I think one way to understand it is when Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you understand that as being salvation only, you're missing the point, I think. Christ himself also said that the Father seeks for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And there's more truth to what Christ said than just salvation. Christianity is not just Salvation. It's not just heaven. It's not just an insurance policy against hell. It's far more than that. Christ is actually the gateway. He says, I am the door. The gateway into the heart of God. And that heart is infinite. For those that may be familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis, the, the final uh, book in the, in the Narnia series talks about going... Uh, Inward, I think it's inward and upward, uh, that the idea that as you, as you go further and further into God, it expands, it doesn't contract. It's not like, a, like an onion where you peel off layers and it gets smaller. No, with each layer, he gets bigger. That's the amazing thing about the heart of God. And if we are to understand the heart of God and the nature of God, we need to understand him through Christ. He is that way into God. I won't read it this morning, but when you have a moment, open up to John, the 17th chapter, and you will read Christ's prayer. And it's this beautiful infolding of, of, of unity where he talks about how we, how we may be one with him as he is with the Father, that we all may be one. And it's this, it's this, you want a description of a journey into the heart of God, that's it. 
Christ himself gives it to us. Whatever God is, he is without limit. That idea in and of itself should give us pause. Again, C.S. Lewis, I think it was, that said, if you want an illustration of time, picture a sheet of paper that extends in all directions over the edge of the horizon, and time being a one-inch pencil line on that paper. Time begins when that point of the pencil drops onto the paper and ends when that pencil lifts off, and the paper extends in all directions. There's a hymn writer who, in his praise of God, says, calls God the unbounded, unextended unity. That seems a funny way to talk about God, but when we stop and, 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 and reframe our thinking about God, it becomes clear. God doesn't have to extend into anything. He already occupies everything. There is nothing that is outside of God. The psalmist again says, you want to get your head right about thinking about God? Read the Psalms. There, the, the, the mystery of the nature of God is, is, is opened up to us. He says, if you make your... The psalmist David says, if I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I go to heaven, you're there also. There's no place where God is not. God doesn't just fill everything. He encompasses everything. Why is that important? So we say, okay, we got a really big God now that we're talking about. Well, first of all, it's not just where he is. It's what he is that is infinite. When we talk about God's power, God owns all power. It's not just that he's the alpha being in the universe, the one who has the most power, or even perhaps more power than all the rest of the the beings in the universe put together. He himself is the source of power. We can talk about the same thing when we speak about his love. Love around us is not something that we generate. Love is something that God is. And as we love, it is God loving through us. He is all love. It's no wonder that the saints in Scripture, whenever they came into the presence of God, simply fell down flat. This idea of God... The presence of God, the manifestation of God, was something that was too great for their mind to hold. In fact, it caused them to short-circuit, if you will, fall down dead before him, realizing how great he was. Now, there's something really interesting about the greatness of God. Anything less than than an infinite God would be imperfect. So what does that look like in our lives? If there was some spot where you could get outside of God, if there was something that was outside of the notice of God, if there was some little bit of power that he didn't have, he would not be a God worthy of worship. Not only that, but he would not be a God 
able to take notice of you. When you think about someone great, someone really important, maybe in your job, a boss, you realize that their time is precious. They're under, there are many people under their responsibility, and so they can only spare a little bit of time or a little bit of attention for you because there are so many great things that they're, they're busy with. The prime minister or the president of a country or an emperor, he could simply not have enough time for those that were of insignificance. He would only speak with the important people. And that wrong concept of God steered the whole Western church off on the wrong track. Then they needed things like a, a, some saints as, as, as minor intercessors and, and Mary as the mediatrix that she could talk to her son and her son could then talk to God. Do you realize all of that was based on a wrong understanding of God? Only an infinite God could take personal knowledge of you and care about you because there is no limit. When he gives himself, he gives himself as fully to you as if you were the only being in the universe other than him. That's how powerful the infinite nature of God is. He can be that personal. Any God less than that wouldn't work. This is why Christ could, could pray that high priestly prayer in John 17, talking about how we all may be one. And when you think about the, these grand words as he explains this, he's talking to a collection of 12 imperfect fishermen, tax collectors, a, a seemingly a rabble. Not great heads of state, not the, the cream of the crop, not the best that the world had to offer. And he tells them that we, that you may be one with me, that you may be one with the Father, that we all may be one. And that prayer extends to us. He says, and to those that are going to believe on me through your words. Because God is not limited. Because he is not limited, he can be the personal God of Scripture. Some have trouble with that. The idea of a God so great, how could he be personal with me? He must be some impersonal force. Some kind of dark matter holding everything together. No. No. He is the infinite, loving God. And he sent his son to be the doorway into his heart. What God does, he does completely. God never says meh about anything in creation or in any part of existence. God either loves with an overwhelming love or hates with a consuming hatred. It's only us imperfect people that don't know and have lack in our being that we're like, mm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I can't understand. I, mm, I could go either way. God's never that way. When he says he loves, he loves with an, with an overwhelming love. When he says he hates sin, he hates sin with a perfect hatred. I think modern Christianity, let's call it nominal Christianity, has done an immense disservice to God through its music. It has taken God and brought him down to a cheap level and made the story about themselves and not about the one who is the, the, the plenitude of strength, the one who has no limit. 
Read the Psalms and see where the focus is. David may talk about his own time, his own time of trouble as a, as a period of testimony, but always the focus returns to God, the great God, the one who is so much greater than him. The hymnody of, of the, the classic hymn writers and even our own Zion's harp is again and again, thou art, thou art, thou art. And in our modern, contemporary Christian music, it's I am, I am, I am. The focus is on me. Not all. And you know, for those that know me well, know that there are certain contemporary Christian uh, songwriters and hymn writers that I very much appreciate because they've restored focus to where it belongs. What God does, he does joyfully. With a perfect joy. Have you thought about that? The idea of a massive, overwhelming, stern God is something that we seem to be able to be okay with. But you ever, have you ever thought of, of one who is a source of infinite joy? who not only loves you, but wants your very best and has the ability to bring it to pass. Just look at the record of creation. What did God say? He said it was good. And when he said it was good, and then he says it was very good, you can put in infinitely good perfectly good, without blemish, without spot. We know sin ruined that, but that was not God's intent. He rejoiced in his creation. He rejoices in you. He delights to show his love to you. When God rested on the seventh day, he didn't do it because he needed it. He did it because you needed it and I needed it. And because he delighted to give us a break, to give us a time of rest and relaxation and refreshment, lest we'd be too concerned with working and toiling. Just in case you think salvation was a hard work for God, it wasn't. Nothing is too hard for him. Do you remember what Christ said when he gave us the parable of the good shepherd? The one who left the ninety and nine in the wilderness and went to seek and save that which was lost? Do you recall what it says when he took that sheep on his shoulders? How did he do that? Gritting his teeth? No, rejoicing. He did it rejoicing. It tells us even Christ, in spite of everything he suffered, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. One hymn writer wrote, In heaven there is, a, there is a joy that we will share with the Father. Our joy that we are there, and his joy that we are joining him. Only an infinite God could be that personal. Only an infinite God has the ability to reach down into your life and to care about every single little detail. That's the kind of God we serve. 
We sometimes forget these things, I think, or perhaps don't stop long enough to think about them. The act of salvation was no less perfect than the act of creation. And he does it again and again and again in the lives of his children. There is no limit to God. That idea in and of itself is something that we struggle with. From I, I struggle with it. I think that, oh, I've messed up and God's grace is going to, well, his grace will be removed if I, if, I, if I rise up in pride. That's true. But he's going to have to now punish me for a while to make up for the, the, my, my mistake. No. He disciplines us. What's the intent of discipline? To change the heart. Not to extract a pound of flesh. He doesn't need her suffering. <laughs> we need to get those ideas out of our head. And instead realize that he delights in giving us grace. If we rise up in pride against him, he will withhold his grace. And we will fall, and it will hurt. But that's not his delight. It says he, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Some people make it seem like, like God delights in the destruction of men and women. No. His justice declares that sin must be judged. But his love takes no delight in it. These characteristics of God, if we would keep them in our, in our minds, if we would ponder them in our hearts, you know, we think sometimes that we have the text and the text is enough. No. This word that we have is a limited word. It has a beginning and it has an end. Christ himself said he is the door, right? The way. That way, by definition, that doorway has a, has a limit, has an edge. But it's what you, what you experience by going through that doorway that is the infinite thing. We can't stop at the text. We need to meditate on it so that God would instruct our hearts. So that the things in this text would come alive. The promises of God are wonderful. But they are wonderful not because they can be clipped out and put on a fridge. They are wonderful because they, are, they, they indicate the heart of the one who made the promise. One of my favorite verses is where it says that, and if, if God spared not his own son, should he, will he not freely give you all things? That's an indication of what Christ the way means and how big the plans of God really are. It's not that we just take out a verse and we say, okay, now I've got that promise and I walk around with that promise and whenever I have a doubt, I quote that promise to myself, thinking that there's some kind of magic power in the text. No, it's the one behind the text that has the power. It's the one that didn't spare his own son that won't forget you. One of the best pieces of reasoning I ever heard about the immortality of the soul was very simple. And I'll end with this. God called Abraham his friend. 
Now, if he is a God such as we've described this morning, a God without limit, a God who has all power, have you ever lost something before and searched around for it? It happens to me a lot, especially when I'm busy. I put something down, and then I walk around. I just had it a minute ago. Where did I put it? Was it here? Was I retrace my steps? God's not like that. He doesn't have to lose anything. And when Abraham died, which one of us, having a friend that died, if we had the power to bring them back, wouldn't do that for a loved one? Of course we would. Well, when there is a God of infinite power, you know, we have that hymn in our Zion's harp, will the head rise and leave his members dead? Of course not. He brings us with him. He delights in bringing many sons to glory. When we have the right idea about God, we, we will have the right idea about everything else, and then nothing will shake us. With a God that big, what circumstance, what circumstance will shake us from that? The early church understood that. And young men and women went joyfully to their death, horrible death, in the arenas, understanding the greatness of the God they served. The Anabaptists, when they caught that vision, did the same thing. The average age of, a, of, a, of an Anabaptist preacher was only about, or the average life expectancy, I should say, of an Anabaptist preacher was only about 21 or 22. These were young men that went out with the fire of the gospel. I'll finish with a final story. It happened on the fields in Holland where the persecution against the Anabaptists was uh, very fierce. There was a young man, a young, good-looking man, who was going out to be killed with, with a, a number of other Anabaptists. And there was a local magistrate there who had no children of his own, and he looked on that young lad and he says, Boy, why will you throw away your life? Renounce this foolishness and come with me. I'll make you my son. You'll have everything you could need. Don't throw away your life. And the young man with clear eyes turned to that magistrate and said, renounce your sinful ways because if you do not, not even your wealth and position will save you. He had the eternal perspective. He understood the infinite God that he served and realized that this world is not it. We serve a God much greater than that. May God bless the words that we've heard this morning. Would a brother please select a hymn? Would a brother please select a concluding hymn? I normally ask the other brother to conclude, thinking that's an appropriate way to fulfill the scripture that says, if the Lord reveals anything to the one who's sitting, he should be given place to speak. But in my own fallibility, I forgot a few things, and I'd like to add them just to the end as a conclusion. So forgive me for that. As you saw, I'm definitely a fallible man. First of all, I forgot to ask for greetings. We plan to be in Strasbourg Road this afternoon. We'd like to take the church's greetings. Please do take the church's greetings. Thank you. Even talking about the infinitude of God, my mind isn't large enough to hold all the pieces that I'd like to even say. I am severely limited. But there is one thought that I'd like to leave with you, and it's this. In all of creation, in the greatness and the majesty of it that we see, there is nothing 
so like God as your soul. We are the only thing made in the image of God. Have you ever wondered why you never seem to be able to be satisfied with things here below? That even when things are going well, there's that feeling that says there must be more than this? We have pet rabbits at home. They live in a cage that's about 18 inches wide by about four feet long or so. We open up the door and there's a ramp that goes down to a larger area that they run around in. And they don't even run around that much. They mostly just sit in the same spot. And they're happy to do so. No worries, no cares, as long as they're fed and watered, safe, not too cold, not too hot, it's fine. But we're not like that. Even when we have everything there's still something in us that says there must be more. There must be more. That's because we're a reflection of the great God who made us. Like a little puddle reflecting the sky above. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever experienced this? Looking within yourself and wondering why is this hole so big? Why am I so uncertain about things? Why, why do I exist? Why am I here? That longing is part of the nature that God gave us when he made us in his image. And there we get a little glimpse as to what the infinitude of God is like. Something that can never be exhausted, something that continues to go, except in us, apart from God, it's a continual emptiness, but in God, it's a continual filling. That's what we can look forward into heaven. Not that things will get worse with time, but that they will only get better. What a great God we serve. Let's think rightly of him. Have you ever thought about that verse where Christ says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them? In the light of everything we've talked about this morning, do you realize how stunning that is? When the Olympic Games occur every four years, millions, maybe billions of dollars are spent on the opening ceremonies and the, and the, the design of the thing and the theatrics of it. You would think for a God that's so great, we would need something equally great to try to worship him. But not an infinite God. Not an infinite God. He delights even where two or three are gathered in his name, and he's there. He's so great that you are not beneath his notice. And even when it's a small gathering, relatively like this, maybe relative to next weekend, he's just as here as he will be, Lord willing, next weekend. And he's just as present when you kneel in your closet at home and invite him into your heart. Your heart was made for an infinite God. May the Lord bless the words we've heard this morning. Amen.